The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Every time a missile misses its target, a train derails, or a faulty airbag fails to save a life, we wonder whether these failures, which can sometimes reach catastrophic proportions, are caused by a counterfeit part that may have infiltrated the supply chain. Welcome to People to People, working together for your safety with host Stan Salat, Jr. Stan has the answers to your questions on protecting yourself and the safety of your loved ones, including your pets. Don't miss out. Now, here is Stan Salat. Hello and welcome to People to People, working together for your safety. I'm your host, Stan Salat. Our show today is false, misleading, deceptive marketing. Do you know the difference? Do you know the difference between false, misleading, or deceptive marketing? Some companies put trademarks on their own products or services that are close in appearance or meaning to the trademarks of the original manufacturer, doing so in such a manner that confuses or misleads the potential purchaser into thinking their goods come from, are associated with, and were authorized by the original source. The harm goes beyond loss of business. Customers can also get confused buying the infringer's goods rather than the original goods. It can also adversely affect the image that customers and potential customers have of the original source. Unsuspecting consumers can become supporters of their practice, which is not actually considered counterfeiting or trafficking, although it has many of the same characteristics. I am extremely uh, pleased and, and, quite frankly, excited to have my guest, Professor Jacob Jacoby, on the show today. And we'll be talking to Professor Jacoby about some of the incredible work that he has done. Um, uh, Professor Jacoby is, by all means, the expert, and I think you'll you really appreciate uh, my excitement as we go forward in this show today. Uh, as you hear me talk and hear uh, Professor Jacoby talk about some of the work that he's done in this area. Before we get started and uh, before I introduce uh, the professor, let me uh, take a minute and recognize our sponsors. Today's show is being brought to you by our sponsor, Business and Quality Process Management, LLC, and Secure Components, LLC. Business and Quality Process Management, LLC, provides business process and quality management consulting, training, and software tools. The principles of BQPM led the development and implementation of the International Hazardous Substance Process Management Certification Program used by more than 4,500 manufacturers to demonstrate compliance to the European Union's restriction of hazardous substances, the laws 
and the International Counterfeit Avoidance Certification Program. To learn more about the work that BQPM does and how they can help your company, visit their website at www.bqpm.com. Secure Components LLC, another one of our sponsors, is an independent distributor specializing in obsolete and hard-to-find components. Secure Components is the first company in the world to achieve international certification for their counterfeit detection and mitigation process controls. Their IECQ CAP certification was achieved in accordance with the SAE AS6081 standards. When you need to find high-quality, obsolete, or hard-to-find components, you want Secure Components on your team. To learn more about what Secure Components can do for you, um, visit their website at www.securecomponents.com. So without spending uh, more time, though, those are our sponsors. But as I said, I'm, I'm really excited, and I want to welcome Professor Jacob Jacoby to the show. Hello, Jacob. Uh, how are you doing, Stan? And as we agreed, you're going to be calling me Jack. Okay. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm humbled here to say that uh, I feel honored to do that, but I'm also inclined to go back to Professor Jacoby once in a while, so bear with me. Um, I, I need to... I'd like to, I shouldn't say I need to, I'd like to share with our audience, before we get started, just a little bit of uh, your background, Jack. Um, And folks, let me tell you, this background, I could spend the entire hour of today's show just talking about Jack and his background. So with that said, let me jump in here and talk about some of the things Um. Jack, at the invitation of the American Bar Association, at the time uh, referred to at that time as Professor Jacoby, had written a, a, and help me out again, I'm going to get this wrong, testes? A treatise. Treatise. Why, why I want to call it a, the other word, I, I don't know. Anyway, he'd written a tra- he has written a treatise entitled Trade, Trademark Surveys that was published by the uh, American Bar Association in August of 20, uh, 2013. Uh, and, folks, after the show, I want you to uh, head out to the American Bar Association or other, other websites and take a look at this work of art. Uh, this is a masterpiece, Trademark Surveys, Volume 1, Designing, Implementing, and Evaluating Surveys. Um, let's see, Jack, you have a Ph.D. in psychology from Michigan State University in 1966, uh, served in the military as an officer in the Air Force. Um, you, have a, you served as a professor of psychology and head of the consumer psychology program at Purdue University. Uh, let's see. What else, dude? Uh, why don't I let you talk a little bit about this? You know, well, before I do that, before I do that, you've published six books and more than 160 articles and book chapters. Is there anything you haven't done on this subject? Um, much more that I haven't done than have done. But well, I'm still young it's hard. and I'm, I'm working away at it. Uh, it's hard to believe that, that you... Uh, 
that there's more that you haven't done reading reading some of this, Jack. Um, let me also share with our listening audience, I've had the privilege of meeting uh, Jack personally. I've also met his wife uh, and his beautiful daughter. And I would say uh, on a personal note, Jack, what I what I learned about your daughter in the little bit of time I was there, um, I believe we have another rising star that's going to take after her father. Oh, thank you. So, well, it, before well, again, I, I apologize for stuttering and stammering just a little bit here, but uh, I feel like I'm in the uh, presence of royalty here. What what Jack can you add that our listening audience? I should know about you you and the work you've done before we actually start talking about our subject today. Um, well, I, I I don't want to get into too much detail of, uh, you know, patting my back, uh, feeling good about myself and what I've done, but uh, as a scholar for about 20 years, I was the most cited uh consumer researcher in the world, uh, according to various studies. Uh, I have all kinds of honors and awards and, you know, testifying before Congress and uh, uh, all kinds of other things that attest to the fact that um, I kind of know what I'm thinking uh, and talking about. Um, It was around 1980 when I started getting uh, seriously into uh, designing studies for uh, uh, to be provided as evidence in litigated matters. I was brought into this uh, first by the people at the National Football League, and I designed their work for over 20 years. And uh, since then, I've been involved in approximately a 1,000 different litigated matters, um, generally designing surveys uh, or critiquing them, mostly designing them. And the areas are basically what's known as intellectual property. They have to do with trademarks, trade dress, uh, deceptive and misleading advertising. As an aside, I wrote the, uh, uh, under contract to the Food and Drug Administration, I developed their definition of misleading advertising and uh, their procedures for measuring the same. You, uh, you've, you have, in fact, I was noticing uh, in our discussion and some things I've read, uh, the FTC and the FDA, you've been involved with them over the years. Yeah, uh, I was a consultant uh, on a project uh, and a researcher on a project with the Federal Trade Commission. I've done a number of things uh, for and against both the FTC and the FDA, Uh, but most of my work is actually in the federal judicial system uh, in the district courts around the country. And most of the work, uh, to the extent that perhaps your audience is familiar with it, most of the work has to do with the Lanham Act L-A-N-H-A-M Act, which uh, protects uh, both companies and consumers from uh, deception. This this is an extremely interesting topic. I'm, I'm sure that I'm not the only one that has watched an ad or read an ad or seen something in a uh, retail outlet where I've looked at it and say, is that really what they mean? Um, or is, you know, when, when we see an ad that uh, says one thing, but can you really believe it? I'm assuming that's what we're talking about here. That's part of it, yes. In fact, some of the early stuff, which is kind of amusing, um, 
one case uh, with the federal uh, with the Food and Drug Administration uh, around 1974, I think. Um, the case was captioned "The U.S. versus Ten Cases of Taco Casserole." Now, imagine that the whole might of the United States against ten cases of taco casserole. But the uh, matter there was taco casserole uh, is sort of uh, is a uh, product that you mix with either meat, beef, pork, chicken, uh, lamb, and uh, it's designed to give you a full meal. And the package showed pictures of the finished product. Well, the FDA said, and this was a small package, just mm-hmm. like uh, you may remember the packages of, uh, and they may still be around, of Shake and Bake. Yes. Um, well, uh, Shake and Bake doesn't show you the granular stuff on the outside, and uh, uh, they show you the finished product. And uh, Taco Casserole, which is a McCormick and Co- Spice Company uh, product, showed the finished product on the uh, photo as a photo on the front of the package, and it clearly said uh, you have to add the meat, the beef, the whatever it was you were adding uh, at okay. several places in prominent letters. But the FDA thought it was deceptive, and uh, I was at that point working for McCormick and Company as a consultant, brought in to testify on the matter, and uh, uh, as part of the testimony, uh, brought in a, a box of cereal showing a bowl uh, with a spoon and milk and um, made sure that everyone knew. <laughs> you know, you don't buy, uh, say, Cheerios or Rice Krispies and expect to find a bowl and uh, a saucer and a spoon and milk in there. I mean, consumers want to see what the finished product is like. All right. So some of the early stuff was kind of silly. Uh, another one, as an example, was the Federal Trade Commission went after Mrs. Paul's fish sticks because they used the word fish fillet. And according to the definition, a fillet is a single slice of meat or beef or fish. And uh, Mrs. Paul's occasionally had two pieces sliced uh, spliced together and buried right. as one. And so when the FTC came to me on that one, uh, I asked them how many... Uh, Mrs. Paul's fish stick packages and sold it by that time. And they said, I think, uh, uh, several million. I asked them how many complaints they'd received from consumers, and they said zero. And I asked them why they were going forward with this, and they said because it's false. It says filet when some of the items in the uh, package are not filets, technically, according to the definition. All right. So uh, that one I decided not to get into. But... Uh, that was characteristic of early um, regulatory agency approaches. Uh, they were trying to stick up to the consu- for the consumer in, in some silly ways. Ultimately, by the uh, 1980s, they got to realize that they needed to get research and see how consumers really thought, felt, and what they understood before they went ahead and proceeded calling everything uh, deceptive. So there, there is, in fact, then a... a a whole science behind the process of surveying that is part of what you're you're doing. Yes. Uh, the surveys I design are generally nationwide because these are nationwide products. Um, I'll design them uh, in my study. Uh, I have various subcontractors who implement them nationwide. And when the data come back in, I'm the one that does the analysis, the write-up, and 
submitting the uh, reports uh, to clients who in turn submit them to courts. That's that, that is undoubtedly intense and realizing that when you do an analysis and present a, a position on it, um, you, you undoubtedly are working hard to make sure that the position is den- uh, defensible, I guess is the right word. Yeah, uh, because in almost all these cases, the other side will retain their own experts whose uh, sole objective is to tear me apart. And uh, sometimes it gets pretty sticky. (laughs) Um, And sometimes the experts are uh, very competent people, uh, people who I know and respect um, uh, as being uh, very competent researchers. Uh, Fortunately, I... And I probably have a batting average of around, uh, you know, 800 percent, uh, or not percent, uh, you know, point eight oh oh oh. I do lose a few, but most of the time my clients do end up prevailing. Yeah, I'm sure they appreciate that. Um, when we come back, we're gonna, we need to take a, uh, a short break here for station identification and uh, identify our sponsors. But when we come back... I'd like you, if you would, to explain the differences between false, misleading, and deceptive industry practices. I think it'd be helpful for the audience, and quite honestly, I'd like, I know we've talked about it a bit, but I would love to hear that again and uh, help folks understand that there, there is differences between those three. We'll be back in just a minute. Don't go away. Uh, be back with my guest, Dr. Jacob Jacoby. Um, and I'm referring to Professor Jacoby as Jack. Secure Components is proud to be the first independent distributor certified to the Department of Defense adopted AS6081 counterfeit avoidance standard. Our clients view us as partners in counterfeit avoidance because we share our source of supply. We have earned their trust to procure electronic and mechanical components specifically when their requirements are obsolete or unavailable from authorized sources. Visit securecomponents.com today to learn why the largest aerospace defense and technology companies in the world partner with Secure Components. Did you know that hazardous substances and counterfeit material can be in everything we buy? From new clothing, cars, toys, power cords, and charging units, to your garden hose and the drywall in your home. Did you know that many of these toxins or counterfeits have been found to cause infertility, birth defects, autism, obesity, and diabetes, which can be passed down from parents to children? It's nearly impossible to know the ingredients in these products, yet Stan Salat Jr., author and creator of the not-for-profit HSF Mark Alliance and Counterfeit Avoidance Mark Alliance, believes that consumers have the right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in the products we buy. Are you a retailer, a manufacturer, a manager, and a person who cares about the safety of the products you sell and buy? Protect your assets, your job, and your family now. Tell Stan that you want his help. Contact BQPM today. Visit our website at www.bqpm.com or call toll-free 877-415-0191. BQPM.com. Together, we are working for your safety. 
This is People to People, working for your safety. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to stan.salat at ecccorp.org. Again, that's stan.salat, S-A-L-O-T, at ecccorp.org. Now, back to People to People. Welcome back to People to People, working together for your safety. I'm your host, Stan Salat. Our show today is False, Misleading, Deceptive Marketing. Do you know the difference? I'm uh, very pleased. In fact, I'm honored to have uh, Dr. Jacob Jacoby uh, on the show with me today. Jack is a renowned expert in doing surveys and working with the... um, the court systems to help companies, supporting companies both pro and con in the areas of deceptive, misleading, and false advertising, or marketing rather, as well as uh, the trademark issues, both trademark and, uh, let's see, their trademarks and dress and, what was the other term? Trademarks and trade dress. Right. Those two things. Before we took the break, uh, I was asking Jack if he would to help us understand the difference between false, misleading, and deceptive industry practices. So if we could come back to that, Jack, um, help the audience and myself, for that matter, really understand what, what is the differences between those? What do they mean and what are the differences? Well, there are two broad categories. One is false, and the other is deceptive, misleading, and those are different also. False advertising, false packaging um, is where a manufacturer, an advertiser, will make a claim on a product. And the claim can be tested and shown to be false. For example, um, the you might say, uh, you know, here's breakfast cereal X. It contains um, uh, dried strawberries and raisins. Uh, and that's the claim in advertising, the claim on the package. Well, you can actually analyze the components. And if there are no dried strawberries in there, then the claim is false. Uh, okay. no, reason, no reason to go test consumers on that. Uh, On the other hand, you have uh, misleading and deceptive advertising and packaging. Uh, Deceptive is the older term, and it implies basically a deliberate intent on the part of the advertiser to deceive the consumer. Uh, On the other hand, misleading advertising recognizes that there doesn't even have to be a deliberate intent on the part of the advertiser for consumers who, upon reading an ad or looking at a package information or listening to a sales practice, um, could be deceived uh, based upon their own interpretation or misinterpretation uh, of what was there. And advertisers may say things that are totally true, but consumers can get the wrong idea, the wrong inference from it. And if uh, somewhere in the order of around 15 to 20 percent of a representative sample of purchasers of that product get a wrong impression, then courts will take action and uh, uh, prohibit the company that's engaging in these practices from doing so. And uh, part of the reason to get back to uh, 
even if there's no deliberate intent. Right. On the, let me give you an example of, uh, of one study. Um, uh, Warner Lambert has a product called EPT Plus for Early Pregnancy Test Plus. Okay. And the research shows that women who want to know if they're pregnant uh, want uh, two or three things uh, in their product. They want to use it on the first day they can, not wait until you know uh, a certain number of days elapse. And they also want the results as quickly as they can get them. They don't want to sit around and wait for two hours before knowing. Uh, they want to get them as quickly as possible. Right. So APT came out with advertising for uh, its product. And the claim was that EPT works, quote, in as soon as 10 minutes, unquote. And uh, they had very good advertising and show a young man by a phone uh, in the olden days trying to keep people away from getting this pay phone because he expected his wife to call him to let him know if she was pregnant. And he keeps saying, uh, and as soon as 10 minutes. I'll know it'll be as soon as 10 minutes. Uh, you know, that's what, please wait. You know, she'll be calling me any moment, and we'll know in as soon as 10 minutes. And they emphasize that probably right. half a dozen times. Well, if you show that ad to women um, who are contemplating uh, being pregnant or concerned about being pregnant and would use this kind of uh, product, and you show the ad not once, but you show it twice, and then you ask them, how long does it take before you get results? Um, you find about 90% of the women say, uh, hey, well, you get the results in 10 minutes. Right. That's what I would have said. <laughs> but you don't. Um, most people will take up to 30 minutes. Ah. Uh, you see? And so... You know, they were, uh, the advertiser was telling the truth in as soon as 10 minutes, but the consumers were extracting 10 minutes, and uh, that is actionable. So even though the advertiser can say something truthful in its ads and on its packages, if the prospective potential consumer for these products comes away uh, thinking something else, that's deceptive, uh, the courts can take action. And we do this, uh, if I can explain how this happens. We, when we listen to people speak and when we read communications, we are always making inferences. We're going beyond the actual words. Right. And some of these inferences are logical. For example, if I read uh, Robin is taller than Jonathan, then the logical inference is, well, Jonathan is shorter than Robin. Uh-huh. But here's a classic. I wrote this down so I could uh, give it to you. Suppose you heard the following message, quote, Are you tired of the sniffles and runny noses all winter? Tired of always feeling less than your best? Get through a whole winter without colds. Take a radical pills, unquote. And now, what would the pragmatic implication, pragmatic inference be? Well, what do you think would happen if you took radical pills? I wouldn't get a cold. Yeah, but it, nowhere it said, nowhere does it say a radical uh, gets rid of runny noses and sniffles. Um, that's an inference we make because it seems to be reasonable and pragmatic from what we uh, saw, what we read. Okay. So 
that's how we, as thinking beings who are always uh, making inferences, drawing implications, can trip ourselves up. And the courts protect us from ourselves by saying, hey, if an ad is misleading, even if the advertiser didn't uh, deliberately want to be deceptive, but if consumers impose their own interpretations on this material that leads them to a deceptive understanding, then we, the courts, will take action against the advertiser. So what you're saying, and that's a subtle point as well, it isn't always intentional that a, an advertiser or a company is doing something. Um, it's really once it's out there and people start hearing and reacting to it that it becomes, shall we say, evident or potentially evident that that it's not – it isn't what was expected or it isn't working the way they thought it would. Right. Now, for – you know, there are lots of things that work here. Um, advertisers, the reputable ones, the big ones, you would think, don't want to be caught and uh, brought up on deceptive advertising charges and, and see their name uh, brought into the newspaper uh, where they were being deceptive. Um, in part because of how it will affect their business, in part because uh, these suits are very expensive. Uh, they can run into several millions of dollars easily. And I'm not okay. talking about the surveys. I'm talking about all the lawyers' fees, etc. Right. But on the other hand, uh, maybe, you know, it's worthwhile if you spend five bucks and uh, five million bucks to... Um, defend yourself against deceptive advertising if you make uh, 50 million bucks in the process. Mm. So there's a tension there. Right. And, and some advertisers, uh, you know, will, uh, will skirt the line, thinking maybe the adversary won't come up against them, won't sue them, um, in which case they're home scot-free. Or even if they do, well, you know, it's the cost of doing business. So we'll spend uh, $5 million or maybe more bucks. Um, but look at how much more we'll make if, uh, you know, if we go ahead with our uh, deceptive, misleading practice. So it's really, it really comes down to good old business return on investment, the ROI. Um, yep. In, in some cases. On the other way. hand, some firms are more reputable than others. And some, you know, would, would not want to do that. By the way, it's it's when I say the firms, um, they're really responsible. The manufacturers are responsible for the advertising that the ad agencies they hire do. Right. So that um, there was a case I was involved in. Uh, it was Gillette versus Wilkinson Sword. Uh, Wilkinson Sword was advertising uh, its new blades with its new. Um, I think it was a blue strip. And it was saying it's six times smoother than glass, six times smoother than all kinds of things. They, in the TV right. commercials, they showed uh, a man uh, uh, brushing his hand against a woman's derriere, six times smoother than, six times smoother than. And, um, you know, if it's a razor blade, what would you think they're referring to when they say six times smoother than? My shave, my face is six times smoother than it would have been otherwise. Right, but that wasn't what they were saying. <laughs> <laughs> what they were saying is that their strip was six times smoother than Gillette strips. 
And um, in that case, I mean, the research that I did showed that consumers took away, as you did, the idea that I'll get a six-time smoother shave. Well, that was the first case uh, where a judge not only sued the company, but also sued the advertising agency. Um, And so that doesn't happen frequently now, but, um, you know, advertising agencies are also... Uh, they they also have to take care to be uh, very honest and accurate. Yeah, I, I that that one about Gillette is interesting because I do remember buying the the buying into the commercial because I wanted a smoother shave. Mm-hmm. I never ever thought that they were talking about the smoothness of the uh, strip. So. Uh, I've learned something, if if nothing else, I've learned that that mistake was made many years ago, and I still use the same razor because I still, well, up until now, I was believing that I was getting a smoother shave. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> well, let me, let me give you another example. I mentioned uh, uh, companies will move toward a point where the consumers will believe certain things and they think their competitors won't come after them. Right. Um, you know the Del Monte company with the uh, wonderful green background and logo. Sure. Well, in '89 they split into two companies. One was called Del Monte Foods, and the other was called Fresh Del Monte. Now Del Monte Foods uh, sold preserved fruit. Uh, you know all the the fruit cocktail and the orange slices and the grapefruit right. slices uh, packed in juice. In cans, right. and the fresh Del Monte was limited to selling only fresh fruit and fresh produce. And these two companies are totally independent. Okay. And fresh Del Monte started doing very well, and so Del Monte Foods began selling uh, its preserved fruit in see-through packaging, the kind you might get at. No, at the Korean delis here in New York City. Okay. Uh, and instead of, this was preserved fruit. Instead of having it in the canned fruit aisle, they started moving it to the fresh produce section. And um, the closer they got, the more fresh Del Monte decided, wait a moment, they're really encroaching on us. They're... Uh, implying to consumers that the f- the fruit is fresh fruit in there when it's really not, and um, so I was retained by Fresh Del Monte. Did several surveys uh, for them, uh, which involved uh, people viewing videos of uh, going to the product at different parts of the uh, supermarket of the supermarket. Which was right. kind of interesting because we had to get permission to do this video in a supermarket, and we could only do it between two and four a.m. in a supermarket in New Jersey. You know, we didn't want uh, distraction there. But then right. the results came out in the way Fresh Del Monte expected, and uh, I believe it was last year. It may have been 2012, but I think it was 2013 when it was finally decided in favor of fresh Del Monte, and so Del Monte Foods has to sort of move away from the kind of packaging that they were using that was suggesting to consumers 
um, that the product inside was um, preserved, it was fresh when it was actually preserved. That's interesting because I used to go to the fresh fruit area to find that Del Monte uh, product, and then it, it's been disappearing. The, those those types of products are really hard to find in the fresh fruit section anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, now, again, one more thing I've learned in this brief discussion we've had uh, so far. Um, we need to take a short station identification break, and when we come back, we'll continue this discussion. Uh, Please don't go away. Did you know that hazardous substances and counterfeit material can be in everything we buy? From new clothing, cars, toys, power cords, and charging units, to your garden hose and the drywall in your home. Did you know that many of these toxins or counterfeits have been found to cause infertility, birth defects, autism, obesity, and diabetes, which can be passed down from parents to children? It's nearly impossible to know the ingredients in these products, yet Stan Salat Jr., author and creator of the not-for-profit HSF Mark Alliance and Counterfeit Avoidance Mark Alliance, believes that consumers have the right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in the products we buy. Are you a retailer, a manufacturer, a manager, and a person who cares about the safety of the products you sell and buy? Protect your assets, your job, and your family now. Tell Stan that you want his help. Contact BQPM today. Visit our website at www.bqpm.com or call toll-free 877-415-0191. BQPM.com. Together, we are working for your safety. Secure Components is proud to be the first independent distributor certified to the Department of Defense adopted AS6081 Counterfeit Avoidance Standard. Our clients view us as partners in counterfeit avoidance because we share our source of supply. We have earned their trust to procure electronic and mechanical components specifically when their requirements are obsolete or unavailable from authorized sources. Visit SecureComponents.com today to learn why the largest aerospace defense and technology companies in the world partner with Secure Components. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. This is People to People, working for your safety. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to stan.salat at eccorp.org. Again, that's stan.salat, S-A-L-O-T, at eccorp.org. Now, back to People to People. Welcome back to People to People, working for your safety. I'm your host, Dan Salat. Our show today is False, Misleading, Deceptive Marketing. Do you know the difference? My guest today is Professor Jacob Jacoby. And Dr. Jacoby is a renowned expert in the subject of uh, misleading, mis, 
false misleading and deceptive uh, marketing, uh, trade dress, and trademark issues. Uh, well written, well respected, and has numerous uh, books and articles that he's written. We've been talking about a number of things, and I and I must say, Jack, I'm learning a tremendous amount as we go through. And I'm starting to understand why, when I go to the store and when I buy things, I have to be more careful about how I interpret what I read and what I see. Um. So you were about to say something uh, just before we went on break. If you wouldn't mind, uh, let's pick up where we left off and uh, go forth. Okay. I, I'm not sure what it was. Was it, I think, perhaps in regard to Google or Geico versus Yes, Google? yes, that was it. That was an interesting matter. Uh, these days, uh, we're all on the Internet, and uh, we all use, uh, say, not all, but the predominant <laughs> engine is the Google search engine. And um, people typing in Geico to look for auto insurance, uh, you know, all these what are called organic sites come up. But in addition, there are advertising or sponsored sites. And um, Geico sued Google saying that when people typed in Geico's name as a search term uh, and the sponsored sites came up on the side, and they were labeled as sponsored sites, people would think that those sites also uh, carried GEICO insurance when that was not, in fact, the case. Hmm. So um, I did uh, three different surveys uh, using all kinds of controls, and uh, it was interesting. Um, I, I had them people type in GEICO, and I had different people type in uh, Nike, Right. And um, had the same pages come up with the same sponsored links. And there was virtually no difference when they typed in Nike and saw sponsored links on insurance uh, as opposed to when they typed in Geico. Uh, There was hardly any difference. Hardly anyone thought that Geico uh, was available from these sponsored sites. That case settled right in the middle uh, Google being the defendant, Geico put its case on first, and uh, uh, then later in the day, after we had uh, opportunity to describe some of our stuff, the court called the parties into her chambers, and the matter settled, and uh, essentially that opened the door to Google making uh, bazillions of dollars in advertising. Um uh, the Internet now is, is a big area where a lot of uh, these cases are, uh, a lot of cases are addressed uh, to Internet advertising. You know, I've noticed that, and I've noticed it more since I've started talking with you. Um, the, the amount of advertising and the way it's done and some of the subtleties that are in there, uh, it, it's, in some cases, it's quite annoying. As you think you're doing one thing, you find yourself totally off in a different place when you click on something. Mm-hmm. So, one one other um, experience that you've had that I'd like to share because uh, again, it's something that uh, I personally uh, thought of, and and now I know better. But you were involved with the Ferrari, uh, if you will, uh, share with the audience the. 
discussion you and I had about the Volkswagen Ferrari versus the real Ferrari. Okay. <laughs> um, you probably remember the show Miami Vice. Yes. And it uh, used to be that it opened with what looked like a Ferrari. Uh, right. Well, it wasn't a real Ferrari. It was uh, uh, people were able to buy a kit um, which had the shell looking like a real Ferrari. All right. Uh, but you put it uh, often on a VW uh, chassis with a VW right. engine. And yeah, so, that's that's the one I was actually going to do once upon a time. <laughs> so Ferrari sued uh, first uh, a kit manufacturer called McBurney, and then another one uh, elsewhere. And we won both cases, but um, it showed that uh, consumers uh, basically thought Ferrari had uh, sponsored these companies, had authorized these companies, and that was a big problem for Ferrari uh, when consumers thought that because uh, let's say you're in your station wagon adjacent to one of these Volkswagen Ferraris. Right. You're at a light, light turns green, you look at the other driver, he looks at you and you decide uh, macho-wise uh, to see who's going to outspeed who. And you outdrag the Ferrari. Now the, Ferrari, the guy who has the Ferrari kit, he's not confused. He no, knows what he no. bought. But the guy in the uh, station wagon and anyone who happens to be seeing, observing what's going on, right? they're wondering what's going on. And, that, and, and maybe some of them, especially this took place in California, are Ferrari owners or potential Ferrari owners, and uh, they have a lesser image of Ferrari. So a lot of the stuff in trademarks has to do with protecting your image and the goodwill consumers have toward your image. Yes, and um, you know there was a little bit of that, and I have to admit again that when I and this was many years ago when those kits came out, I looked at that and and it was for that very reason I could drive what looked like a Ferrari, but obviously was not going to cost me a quarter of a million dollars, uh, so or more. So that then takes us into if i'm not mistaken into the trademark and trade dress discussion right um because that's kind of where that is is am i correct or yeah, am I- trademarks uh, basically are words or phrases or symbols like the nike swoosh or designs right. or combinations of these uh, like slogans and stuff that identify and distinguish a single source, a particular source of the goods in question. A trade dress is sort of a sub-part of trademark, and it refers to the look or appearance of a product. Uh, and again, if the look or, or appearance is unique um, uh, and identifies a single uh, sponsor, single source, uh, that single source wants to protect it. In fact, uh, we didn't discuss this, but recently uh, we had a spate of uh, Apple versus Samsung cases. Right. And a lot of that had to, there were all kinds of matters. There were patent matters and trademark and trade dress matters. Uh, and Apple was saying, look, uh, Samsung has come so close to using icons that look like our icons. Uh, yes. And that's our intellectual property. Um, and they... Apple did win in the United States. Interestingly, 
uh, around the world, these cases have been going on, and, and uh, Samsung has won more of the cases internationally. But uh, here in the States, uh, I guess we've rejected Apple. But uh, an interesting thing, we talked about this a little bit, was the firearms manufacturer, the Glock, the semi-automatic pistol. Right. Which is used by most police forces, and it's a very clear, obvious design. It was the first clunky, you know, black, sinister-looking weapon. Pistol. Right. Well, it was so popular that Smith & Wesson came out with a similar-looking gun called... Uh, well, I don't remember what it was called, but the uh, gun magazines were calling it the Spock, the Smith & Wesson Glock. Okay. And it had interchangeable parts uh, with the actual Glock. So over there, had to do three surveys, one uh, of the look of it, you know, to see if gun purchasers um, recognized that uh, Glock is coming from a single source, not as coming from just the way a Colt would come from a single manufacturer. Right. And that we did find that out. And then we did two types of confusion surveys where uh, prospective purchasers were uh, put in a situation where they uh, uh, were about to purchase the gun and see what they thought uh, of the Smith & Wesson when they were confused into thinking it either was a Glock or was related to a Glock by business association or relationship or was sponsored or authorized by Glock. And and we found confusion there as well. Um, we also did a third study, uh, which is called post-sale confusion, to see if even if we took the name off Glock and we took the name off the Smith & Wesson, would people be confused? And they were. I, I know we're getting close to the uh, end of the hour, so I'm, I'm going right. to stop right here. Okay. Um, it is, and I think that's one of those that uh, we all need to pay attention to because this is the one that actually also crosses into NFL, um, um, what do they call it, uh, the gear, the, the... Yeah, the football replica jerseys and the caps that uh, right. we all buy, yeah. Uh, I've done, I think, about a half dozen NFL surveys over the years uh, protecting their merchandise. Okay. Would you like me to go into any of those, or do we have well, time? Well, we, we actually don't have time. Maybe if you don't mind, um, I, I want to take a minute and thank you for, for being on the show and um, perhaps get you or convince you to uh, come back on again at another time, and we can pick up where we're leaving off here. Uh, it sounds like a possibility. Okay. Well, Jack, I, I do. I really do thank you. I I do believe that uh, the audience has learned. I certainly have learned a lot about um, the misleading, um, deceptive, and, and false uh, types of marketing, advertising that, that might go on. Also uh, learned the new things about the trademark and trade dress. Well, I thought I knew a lot about some of this, uh, I'm learning that, uh, well, I've learned through this discussion uh, that there's a lot more to learn. So, once again, thank you very much. I do appreciate you being on the show. My pleasure, Stan. As we get to the end of our show, I want to once again remind everybody that People to People Working Together for Your Safety is dedicated to bringing people together to share knowledge 
and create a safer environment for us all. We talk about a lot of different subjects. Uh, primarily, we work in the area of uh, hazardous substance, the lead, the mercury, the cadmium, the hexylvania chromate and such, and the work we're doing around the world to uh, eliminate or reduce those so that we have a safer environment. We also have uh, talked about and continue to talk about the counterfeiting activities that go on worldwide and the, um, the deceptive, if you will, and misleading, if you will, uh, of uh, sellers, retailers, and uh, vendors through the Internet that sell products that suggest that you're buying the real thing when in fact you're not. If you have a question, agree or disagree with the information we're sharing, please send me an email with your comments and questions. Send that to Stan at stansalot.com. You can find uh, more information on our website, stansalot.com. I want to once again remind folks that you can find uh, uh, Dr. Jacob, uh, Jacoby rather, Dr. Jacoby's book, at the uh, American Bar Association, and you can also uh, find that. You, you'll uh, be able to find that as a link on our website, standsalot.com. In order to make these shows work, we need a staff. We need people to help us, and that is Voice America. We have Brandy Jackson, the general manager, Robert Cellino, our executive producer, Randy Jackman, production manager, Jeffrey Gerstel, our director of host services, Brooke Eide, the marketing and social media uh, manager, and the show wouldn't be possible without my trusted uh, soulmate here, if you will, the woman that uh, keeps me straight and on the arrow. My production manager, Miss Yulia Coach, uh, Coach Branding and People to People Production Manager. We also uh, rely on sponsors, uh, Business and Quality Process Management, LLC, and Secure Components. Thank you for joining me on People to People, working together for your safety. Remember, change only happens when people come together and work together. Your help in the fight against the proliferation of hazardous substances and counterfeiting of consumer products could save a life. Until next week, I'm your host, Stan Salat, wishing you a a safe and healthy life. Thank you for listening. Please join host Stan Salat Jr. for next week's edition of People to People, Working for Your Safety. We'll have another show next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a safe, toxic, and counterfeit-free week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 